0: Well, our text tonight in Genesis 13 has the tendency, or could have the tendency, to get lost in the midst of Genesis 12, 15, and 17, because 12, 15, and 17 play uh, such an important theological role in redemptive history, but the pericope that in chapter 13 is actually packed full of lessons for us to learn. It's it's full of practical wisdom and applicable truth that that we really shouldn't overlook. For example, in chapter 12, if you remember we saw Abram fall into the depths of spiritual failure because he forsook the promises God had made to him. And tonight in chapter 13, We're going to see Abram had learned a valuable lesson because in chapter 13, we see him rising to the heights of spiritual success because rather than forsake the promises, he rests upon the promises that God had made to him. And at the same time, we're also going to see Lot, who is described by Peter actually as righteous Lot. But Lot is going to begin to slide down a slippery slope into what's really wicked sin. And of course the lesson for us to learn is is clear. Even the most God-fearing, Savior-treasuring, faith-possessing, and promise-embracing people make bad choices and fall into sin. No one's immune. And in the verse or in the words of chapter 17 of our confession, they whom God has accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit, may, through the temptations of Satan and of the world, the prevalency of corruption remaining in them, and the neglect of the means of their perseverance, fall into grievous sin. And for a time, continue therein, whereby they incur God's displeasure and grieve His Holy Spirit, come to be deprived of some measure of their graces and comforts, have their hearts hardened and their consciences wounded, hurt and scandalize others, and bring temporal judgments upon themselves. So because of that we we need to remain watchful. We need to remain vigilant in the spiritual battle that we we find ourselves in. We need to remain diligent. We need to be diligent in regard to resting in and not forsaking the promises that God has in fact made. We must consistently resist the devil. We must consistently flee temptation. We must mortify our sins. We must be in the process always of guarding our hearts and minds. We must remain patient. We also, at the same time, must remain patient with and gracious toward and prayerful for others who are in the midst of the same battle that we're in. And we mustn't be so quick as to judge hearts that we cannot see. And thanks be to God that by His grace and mercy, they whom God has accepted in His beloved, effectually called and sanctified by His Spirit, the confession says, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein therein to the end and be eternally saved. But this is just the beginning of the lessons learned. This is still the introduction there's also practical wisdom and applicable truth regarding worship regarding working toward unity walking by faith and not by sight as well as waiting for God's blessing and these are all very relevant lessons for us right now particularly when seeking after and resting in worldly temporal temporal things rather than heavenly eternal things is so prevalent in our culture and the man-centered view of worship is so predominant in churches and discord and contention and conflict and strife and turmoil seem to be the default socially and politically and leaders both inside and outside the church manifest unhealthy leadership styles through insensitive and hurtful criticism of others, the use of social media and even pulpits to quiet dissenting viewpoints, and the manipulation of facts to support their own ends. This passage contains practical wisdom and applicable truth that can help us refrain from falling into these traps and patterns and making the same mistakes that could be so, so easy for us to fall into and make because no one is immune. None of us. So the outline I've chosen has four points, and you just heard them. They're in the normal place. We're going to look at the importance of worshiping the Lord, the importance of working toward unity, the importance in walking by faith and not by sight, and the importance of waiting for God's blessing. All right? Again, it's in the normal place. And children, your words are in their normal place as well. Uh, those words that you're listening for. Let's pray uh, as we continue. Father, would you give us ears to hear and prepare our hearts and minds to receive your word. Grant me grace and fill me with your spirit that I might do something good for you and your people tonight. Attend to me as I do this work that you've called me to do, and I pray these things for Christ's sake and for the sake of his church. Amen. Well, if you remember, if you were here last week as we ended chapter 12, you remember I ended the sermon with the first four verses of this chapter, and I said that despite Abram forsaking God's promises, despite his faithlessness, despite his going his own way and taking matters into his own hands, despite the gross negligence and complete lack of love and protection of his wife, despite his contradictory actions that flew in the face of God and every promise that he had made, God remained faithful. God remained true to his promises. Abram had forsaken the promises and God had not only not forgotten them, but he had remained faithful to him. And having Abram, having been confronted with his own sin and having been confronted with God's faithfulness despite his sin, Abram returned to Bethel and Ai. And he returned there because that's where he built an altar. And he returned there despite all that he had done so that he could begin again his faith had been weak his faith had faltered but his faith remained it had not been lost and he returned and called on the name of the Lord he he returned to worship he returned to worship his faithful promise-making promise-keeping God he he returned to repent he returned to acknowledge his sin and misery. He came and returned to seek the forgiveness for his folly. But he also returned to avail himself. He, he returned to avail himself of, of all that God would offer him in worship. He returned to avail himself of the means that God would use to convey his grace and his favor and supply him all that he would need to spiritually undergo the next trial that was just around the corner. But notice, at the end of the chapter, he's, after he's endured the trial, what does he do? He again builds another altar. An altar to, again, worship and respond and thanksgiving and praise for all that had happened and all that the Lord had done. And brothers and sisters, the lesson for us is to acknowledge the importance of worshiping the Lord. Right? It's, it's in worship that we're reminded that we're at peace with God, having been reconciled to Him through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the finished work of Christ. It's in worship that we're reminded that our standing before Him is sure, and that we're no longer strangers and aliens, but sons and daughters of His. We're citizens of the kingdom. It's in worship that we're reminded that by faith we're children of Abraham. We're heirs according to promise. The promises that he has made are ours. They're for us and our children because we're in Christ. It's in worship that we come to not only acknowledge our sin and misery, but to repent of our sins that so easily entangle us. It's in worship that we hear the assurance of God's pardon, that sweet assurance, and we're assured of the forgiveness that is ours in Christ. It's in worship that we avail ourselves of the simple means of grace that, he is, that God has ordained as vehicles through which He conveys His grace and mercy to us, sinners. It's in worship that He feeds and nourishes our our souls. He, He strengthens and nurtures and increases our faith. And He does so through the Word that is read and preached. He does so through the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. He does so through our prayers and through our fellowship with one another. It's in worship that we thank Him and praise Him for His care and His provision and for the blessings of not only this life but the life to come that are already ours in Him. We're in possession of them, though we do not see them. We thank Him and praise Him for the hope that is ours in the Lord in whom we've been seated in heavenly places where we join in worship with heavenly hosts and with the saints that have gone on before us. Well, it didn't take long for that prosperity that Abram had left Egypt with to become a problem, and that's because not only had he profited from uh, his abhorrent decision to traffic his wife, but so did Lot. They both left with a lot, and Moses said that the land was unable to support them uh, both, both of them dwelling together. In other words, they both had so, so many, there were so many people, there were so many animals and livestock that within this immediate vicinity that they, they couldn't remain there. And a conflict arose, but it's, it's important for us to notice that the conflict wasn't between Abram and Lot. The conflict was between the herdsmen. The relationship between the leaders was good but there was strife and contention among the people. There were factions. Right? One group was in support of and wondered what was best for Abram because what was best for Abram was best for them. The others wanted what was best for Lot because what was best for Lot would be best for them. And so there began to be murmuring and quarreling in and, and, and and those factions that had, had, had formed and they were, they were arguing over food and water and whatever else... You know any number of issues that families experience with, when they're within close quarters. Children, if you if you share a bedroom with a sibling or siblings, you understand what's going on. I see your heads nodding. You get it. Now, had the circumstances been different, the conflict may have worked itself out. You know, and the dispute may have been resolved with just a little bit of negotiation. But Moses adds this little parenthetical statement, says the Canaanites and Perizzites were in the vicinity, dwelling there as well. And so any any fissure within the family was going to create an issue. They were going to leave themselves vulnerable to their enemies. And so Abram knew he had to deal with the conflict immediately, and he does. Abram takes the initiative, or took the initiative and sought to make peace. He worked toward unity. In verses 8 and 9, Moses shared his plan. Abram told Lot that he didn't want there to be strife between the herdsmen. He didn't want that strife to begin to interfere with their relationship and to cause strife with their relationship. And he said he didn't want that to happen because you know, they, were, they were men, but they were also brothers. And we, and we know that Abram was Lot's uncle. Abram's point is, look, we, we shouldn't do this because we're, we're brothers, we're family. In the words of Gordon Wyndham, the wording seems to imply, men should not quarrel, let alone brothers. And Abram's ideal is no doubt summed up in Psalm 133. We read it as our preparation to worship. It was how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. But in this particular case, notice that the only solution to maintain unity was Separation there was no other option but we have to remember we need to go back because remember what was the original charge to Abram God told him to separate from his family and his father's house and he had done so for the most part except for Lot so what was the Lord doing what's the Lord doing behind this and And what the Lord's doing is, though sad, the Lord was still in the process of bringing about his purposes of separating Abram. There was a larger picture. And so separation was necessary on more than one level. And in what most commentators and pastors call a magnanimous gesture, Abram lifts his hands, standing on a hill, And Abram lifts his hands and says, Lot, all the land is before you. You want what's over here? It's yours. I'll take what's over there. But if you want what's over there, take it. It's yours. I'll take what's over here. To eliminate the strife and to create peace, to foster unity, Abram humbly forfeited his right as the head of the family and the oldest. And that right was to first take what he wanted and then give the rest. And Abram says, no, Lot, I want you to choose first. I don't want you to have the leftovers. I want you to go ahead. I want you to choose first. And, And his choice is unrestricted. There are no boundaries. Right? There's... There's nothing that he places off limits. Lot could choose whatever he wanted. And beloved, we're we as well, we're called to be peacemakers. We're called to be at peace among ourselves. We're called to live at peace with everyone, as we heard in our Old Testament read, or our New Testament reading. That means we're to take initiative. In working toward unity, and we're to seek to resolve conflict as soon as we see it. And this is important within our individual families. It's important within our larger context of our covenant community or our church family. When we see relationships that are strained around us, we aren't to join aside. We're not to join in the quarrel or fan the flames of discontent through gossip, but instead we're to take action and attempt to restore the relationship. We're to restore the peace. When our own relationships are strained, we're to be willing to go to great lengths to maintain the unity that is desired. We must be willing to set aside to one degree or another in some way we are to set aside our just rights as well as our desires and as well as our ambitions for the sake of resolution and peace and purity of the family and the church. In the words of Paul, we are to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than ourselves. Each of us are to look not only to our own interests, but also the interests of others. We're to abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. We're to love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. We're to live in harmony with one another. We're to never be wise in our own sight or repay anyone evil for evil, but are to do what is honorable in the sight of all. We're to not overcome or be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It's to characterize the relationships that we're in as we dwell in unity. In his commentary on this passage, Calvin said this, note carefully what we are advised to avoid if we're to keep Satan from drawing us into conflicts by circuitous devices. For when he cannot inflame us directly with mutual hate, he implicates us in the disputes of others. We must not let ourselves be upset by these offenses, but equally we must be on guard in every way against the outbreak of fighting. For unless disagreements are completely stifled as they start, they will develop into harmful dissension. And then he says this, And although we are not now continually surrounded by Canaanites, we are in the midst of enemies as long as we are sojourners in the world. Wherefore, if we are influenced by any desires for the salvation of ourselves and of our brethren, let us beware of contentions that will deliver us over to Satan to be destroyed. And let me say this before we move on. As we consider the unity within the church there are obviously things for which we should remain steadfast and and hold tightly from and and never back down from. Of course, the gospel is but one. And we need to pray that the Lord would help us discern how long or short that list is. And we should also pray that the Lord would help us discern when separation is the best and only option. when it comes to maintaining the unity it's sad when it happens but god uses it to bring about his purposes and we need to have wisdom to know when and if that option should be exercised and that and that and that decision should never be made alone or quickly and it should never be it should always happen with the help and counsel of others particularly the elders who have the responsibility of caring for souls. And that brings us to our third point. What was it that enabled Abram to be open-handed when it it came to the land? What was it behind his humble yet magnanimous offer? The answer is, unlike the end of chapter 12, Abram was now walking by faith and not by sight. A significant shift had happened. What Abram had forsaken in Egypt, he now embraced in Canaan. He could release his grip on the land because he was clinging to the promise of God. He could release his grip on the land because he he was gripping or clinging to the promise of God to give him the land. In the words of Derek Kidner, by faith, Abram had already renounced everything. He could afford to refresh the choice, and by faith, he had opted for the unseen. He had no need to judge by the sight of his eyes. And Alan Ross put it this way. He said, the one who believed that God promised to give him the land did not have to reserve it for himself. Abram had the freedom to act generously, righteously, mercifully in his uh, resolving of the dispute. Those who believe the promise of God's provision may be generous with their possessions, but those who are greedy, anxious, and covetous have not understood the nature of God's covenant. Lot, on the other hand, Abram's walking by faith, not by sight. Lot, on the other hand, is walking by sight and not by faith. Rather than defer to Abram, Lot really should have paused and heard Abram's offer and then said, "No way. You're the oldest. Uncle, this is your, the, uh, uncle, the promise is yours. I have no business choosing first. Simply give me what's left over." But Moses, Moses lets us know that that's not what Lot did. Moses writes, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. In other words, he looked out at the Jordan Valley, and it looks like Eden. And he wanted it for himself, and he took it for himself, irrespective of his uncle. Like Eve, who saw, desired and took of the tree of life, Lot saw, desired and took the land of the Jordan Valley. In the end, he sought his own satisfaction, he sought his own gratification, but as is typical, right, that satisfaction and that gratification was, was only temporary, and he ends up in this very precarious position, because things weren't as they appeared. Things weren't really as good as they looked. Looked. Based on the boundaries of Canaan described in Numbers 34, we know that the land that he chose was on the very edge, if not outside of the land of Canaan, outside of the promised land, which explains why Moses said he journeyed east in verse 11. Why is that significant? Because it was a reference of him moving farther away from the place where God dwells that we've seen over and over so far in our study of Genesis. And while he began outside the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, he eventually moved within the city. And as he moves into the city, he becomes one of the great sinners within that city, the city that would eventually be judged and destroyed, reminiscent of the flood. But the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah wouldn't be with water, just as God promised. It would be with sulfur and fire. So let me ask a few questions before we move on to our last point. Are you, are we trusting in what we can see or not see? When it comes to the things of this world, are we open-handed or close-fisted? Are we clinging to Christ and His promises, and the promises of God who are yes and amen in in Christ? Or are we clinging to the things of the world? Is our hope in our material wealth and possessions and the ability of men and women to stabilize the economy through man-made policies and systems, or is it in the Lord upon whom all of the nations and systems are going to crumble? Are we living for the short term and seeking to self-satisfy and self-gratify, or are we living for the long term and storing up treasures in heaven where neither moth, moth nor rust can destroy? And as I asked last week, are we trusting in God's promise to justify and sanctify us through the finished work of Christ and His Spirit, or are we seeking to justify and sanctify ourselves? Are we, do, we, do we possess the conviction that the things that we can't see, like his return and his resurrection and his current reign on the throne and, and his return, being with him eternally, no more tears, no more crying, no more death or mourning, no more pain? Do we believe those things are true even though they aren't visible? Are we walking by faith? Or by sight. Let, let me encourage us all to ask the Lord to grant us the grace that we need to walk by faith. To walk by faith and not by sight. Because the things of the world aren't as they appear. Again, in the words of Calvin, let us then learn by this example that our eyes are not to be trusted but that we must rather be on our guard lest we be ensnared by them and be encircled unawares with many evils just as Lot when he fancied that he was dwelling in paradise was nearly plunged into the depths of hell. And that brings us to our last point. In verses 14 to 18, God spoke to Abram. He spoke to Abram not only to console him after the separation, but to bless him for his treatment of Lot. He's blessing him for clinging to the promise. And, and by clinging to the promise, you know, obedience came forth, and, and God wants to reward him and to encourage him to continue to walk by faith as he had been. And they, he did that, not with giving him something new, but by reiterating the promises that he had already made. Now the first thing we need to do is we need to look at the similarities between Lot and Abram. Notice that just as Lot lifted up his eyes, Abram lifted up his eyes. Just as Lot looked around and surveyed the land, Abram looked around and surveyed the land. Just as Lot was offered the land, Abram was offered the land. Just as Lot traveled and pitched his tent to take possession, Abram traveled, pitched his tent to take possession. But we also need to look at the differences. Notice that Lot lifted his eyes and looked, but God was the one that told Abram to lift his eyes and look. Notice the language Moses uses. Moses said Lot took the land, but Abram was given the land. In the place that Lot took would eventually be destroyed. What what Abram was given would last forever. Lot was the kind of person, in the words of one pastor, who would choose heaven over hell, but would choose earth over heaven. Abram, on the other hand, we know We've said several times that Abram never built a permanent dwelling in the promised land because he knew it was only temporary. He was waiting for his forever dwelling, his eternal dwelling in heaven. So as a result, Lot took and paid the price while Abram waited for what was given And was blessed. And in the meantime, to help Abram in his waiting, God reiterated his promises. He also expounded upon them. Remember uh, chapter twelve, verse seven. God said, To your offspring I will give this land. But here In verse 15 of chapter 13, he adds two words, all and forever. He says, for all the land that you see I will give you and to your offspring forever. And not only does he add those two very simple but significant words, he also gives Abram another sign You remember back in chapter 12, he gave him the sign of the stars in the sky. What does he give him here? He gives him sand. What's he telling him? Abram, whether you look up or you look down, day or night, remember of the promise. Remember my promise to you, your offspring is going to be innumerable and there will be enough land for you all so a few more questions are you and i we need to ask ourselves these questions are we takers or givers are we seeking to get all we can while we can or are we resting in what we will receive in the life to come Are we greedy, anxious, covetous, or are we generous, righteous, and merciful? While we would definitely choose heaven over hell, would we choose earth over heaven or heaven over earth? And are we growing weary and seeking to fulfill our own plan? in our own purposes? Or are we waiting on the Lord patiently to fulfill His? Let me encourage us. Let me encourage us all to not give up. Let me encourage all of us to not go our own way. Let me encourage us not to take matters into our own hands. Let's not in the words of the psalmist, put our trust in princes or in the Son of Man in whom there is no salvation. Let us all wait for God's blessing. Let's wait patiently for the Lord to fulfill His promises. They are sure. How do we know that? Because Christ... The Lord Christ, the ultimate seed of Abraham, and the one to whom Abram pointed in this pericope or story, was the ultimate. The ultimate one who was generous, righteous, and merciful. And you and I have been recipients. We are recipients. Those who look to him in faith are recipients of that generosity, righteousness, and mercy. Though Though the Lord Jesus had everything, He set it all aside so that He might lay His life down and offer not just life, but abundant life to sinners like you and me. He is the one who did nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility counted others, including you and me, more significant than himself. He is the one that looked not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others, including yours and mine. He did not grasp what was rightfully his, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death on the cross. Again, for you and for me. He's faithful. Trust in him. Because blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Father, by your spirit and grace, would you enable us to receive the word with faith and love, lay it up in our hearts, and practice it in our lives. Bless those who have heard your word preached, and may the seed sown in weakness be raised in power and show forth fruit of righteousness. In the name of Jesus I pray, amen.